me start off with this statement. Uh, I want you to consider it as we begin our study today. You'll never have, you will never know authentic transformation without complete submission. You will never know nor experience transformation, life transformation, until we have submitted ourselves to the leadership and the lordship of Christ. There are so many today who are wanting the Lord to transform their lives, to live under the power and in the power of the gospel of Christ, to transcend their lives and transform their lives into what they know that they are meant to be in Christ. And they never succeed primarily because we have not submitted ourselves unto the Lord in a manner that facilitates transformation. Without submission, there can be no transformation. If you don't remember anything I've said today, remember this. Without submission, there can be no transformation. We must submit to the Lordship of Christ if we expect and hope to be transformed into his likeness. A couple of years ago, you know, I've been here this is my ninth winter, so uh, I'm running out of good stories to tell. So I'm going back to the old ones. And some of you who have been here early on, I, I'm sorry if you remember this. Most of you will not, but some of us will. So here's one of my favorite stories. It's about a man who was desperately in need of some money. He needed a job, and so this man went to the city zoo, hoping to get a job feeding the animals. Although no such opportunity was available, the manager, seeing the size and the strength of the applicant, suddenly got an idea. He said, you know, there are, there are few creatures in the zoo that attract attention like a gorilla. Unfortunately, ours just died yesterday. And if we got you a special suit, would you be willing to imitate him for a few days while we await the arrival of our soon-coming gorilla from another place? Well, the hungry man thought about it for a minute, and he agreed to, give it, agreed to give it a try. And he was quite successful at it. He would beat his chest, and he would bellow and cry out like a, like a gorilla. And, and um, he shook the bars and swung from the trees. And to the amazement of all the visitors who watched him perform these amazing feats, they concluded that this was possibly the most intelligent gorilla they have ever seen in any zoo. Everything was going fine until one day, while swinging on his trapeze, he accidentally lost his grip and landed in the lion's den. The huge beast gave a ferocious roar, as lions do, and began to advance, and he began to back up, and he bellowed out and hoping to intimidate the lion, but the lion again roared, and, and uh, so he roared, and he gave, and so eventually at some point, you know, he knew that there was no way in the world that he was going to be able to confront this, this lion, and he backed up, and he backed up until finally his back was up against the wall. The lion continued to progress forward, roaring like the lion did, and he thought he would finally meet his demise when all of a sudden he let out. A loud scream, help, help, to which the lion immediately said, shut up, stupid, you'll get us both fired. <laughs> Pretty bad, huh? You laughed anyway. Where's your sense of humor? Come on, guys. <laughs> Not as warped as mine, right? Unfortunately, there are many of us today who wind up playing games, wearing masks, putting on a Christianity that is not authentic. Many people today walk an aisle and they fill out a card after having prayed a prayer similar to this. Jesus, I acknowledge that you are the Son of God. I know that you died on the cross for my sin against God. Thank you for saving me from my sin. I invite you into my life to be my Savior. And now for the rest of my life, while you're up in heaven working on my mansion when I get there after this life ends, I want you to let me pretty much run my life just like I want to down here on this planet, living the way I want to live, doing the things I want to do. Don't bother me whatsoever. Just let me do my own thing. Oh, and by the way, if I get into a jam, if there's something too hard for me or some rock in this hard place that I find myself in, I want to come to you and I want to ask you to do exactly what I want you to do, when I want you to do it, the way I want you to do it, nothing else, nothing more, just that. Amen. 
And they live their lives accordingly. And they go on claiming to be Christians. They claim to know Christ. They claim to, to be followers and disciples. And yet Jesus Christ is, in fact, not the Lord of their lives. Is it possible to invite Jesus Christ into your life as your Savior and not make him Lord of your life? The answer to that is obvious, no. But there have been many who have walked an aisle, filled out a card, and publicly declared and proclaimed faith in Christ. Thank you for my salvation, but let me run my life exactly like I want to run it, doing what I want to do, when I want to do it, and in the end of my life, I want some pastor to stand in the place of where pastors stand and look over my casket and tell everyone that I knew Christ as my Savior and my Lord. Therefore, I'm in heaven. It's not true Christianity. It's not true Christianity. For when we come to faith in Christ, there's a transformation that must take place. And that transformation comes through a public declaration of your faith in Christ where he becomes not only your Savior, but he becomes the Lord, the leader of your life. You see, the Bible says in this incredible paradox, in order for us to live, we have to die. In order to live, you have to die. You have to die to yourself. And you have to place Jesus in the driver's seat of your life, allowing him to dictate and determine the direction and the course of your life as you seek to follow in his footsteps, becoming like him, doing what he says you should do, becoming the person that he wants you to become, changing or transforming in any way that he... he, he and just, just give it all to him. You, you, you come to salvation by putting your all on the altar before the Lord. Why is it then, after we come to faith in Christ... Many fail to do that, and so they walk away sort of living their life as if that decision really didn't make much of an impact in their lives. Hence, we have close to 6,000 members of Emmanuel Baptist Church, members of the church. Or as I've said before, there have been many who have met the pastor, but they've not met the master because they've never placed their faith and trust in Jesus and have come to know the person of Christ by dying to themselves. The Apostle Paul is writing in Romans chapter 12 this very, very packed, power-packed two verses in Romans 12, 1 and 2 that are worthy of our attention, not just today, but for several Sundays. And I'm not sure exactly how many Sundays we're going to be in Romans 12, 1 and 2, but we're going to come back to it, I know, next Sunday and the Sunday after next, at least three Sundays. It just depends on how the Lord and I uh, sort of meander our way through Romans 12, 1 and 2. Because here the Apostle Paul is calling for authenticity. Authenticity. Not just in our profession, but in our practice. In our practice of Christianity. Of being Christians. For profession without practice is a lack of transformation, and I think it is heresy, if not robbery, to, to claim to be something that we're not allowing that which we claim to affect how we daily live out our lives. And the Apostle Paul is writing to the Roman church, and he's calling them to put everything they have on the altar, not just when they came to faith in Christ, but every single moment of every single day of their lives. It takes a continual practice of us laying our all on the altar in order for us to become a living sacrifice unto him. And that's what he calls all believers, not just a few select, but all those who are disciples of Christ. He's calling us to put all on the altar as a living sacrifice to him. Now, the word sacrifice is not very popular today, but that's what he calls the believer, the disciple, the Christian, to live out his life as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice unto the Lord. What does that mean? And how do we live out this, this call, this, this, this exhortation to put it all on the altar as a living sacrifice. I want to help us understand more fully what that means, and I want us to go to the text this morning, and we're going to sort of do a flyover. We're going to do it very, very quickly. And so I have seven points I want to quickly look at. So everybody turn to your neighbor and said, that's not going to take very long. 
Yeah, I'm getting the same reaction from you that I got from my wife uh, this weekend. She said, I, th- I shortened it this morning. I'm going to do this in a series. And I said, she said, how many points do you have today? I said, seven. So what can I say? The people of Emmanuel Baptist Church love the word of God. Amen? Amen? Okay. I know that wasn't everybody, but we're Baptists. But anyway, let's move on. So how do I place everything on the altar? How do I do that? How do I place it all on the altar? Number one, I must receive, I must receive God's appeal. You've got to receive this exhortation that is coming from the heart of God through the penmanship of the Apostle Paul. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Let's, let's put, I appeal to you, brothers, together. I appeal to you. This is an exhortation. It's a mandate. It is a call, if not a command. This is an exhortation for those of us who are in Christ, who call ourselves Christians. This is an appeal. This is an exhortation. It's not up for debate. It's not up for discussion. It's not even up for vote, church. Whether or not we do this or not, it is an exhortation that, is, that has been given and is given to not only those in Rome, but to us even today, that those of us who were Christ followers, who claim to be disciples, this is an appeal, an exhortation, a command, a mandate from him that we must not only receive, but must do. It's an exhortation. I appeal to you who Brothers, in this expectation, uh, exhortation, there's an expectation. The expectation is that those of us who are brothers, those of us who are in Christ, this is not an exhortation to unbelievers. It's not even an exhortation for salvation. This is an exhortation to those of us who are already saved, whose lives have already been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. It's an exhortation to Christians, to those who claim to follow Jesus. Those of us who are brothers, who are members of the same family because we have the same father through the same faith. We are family members, and through this brotherhood that we have through the father and the family, he is saying those of us who are in Christ must receive this exhortation because it is a responsibility from the father to do exactly what he is asking us to do. It's not up for grabs. It's not an option for you or for us or for me. It's an exhortation. We must receive it and we must apply it. We must make it a reality in our lives. There's a lot of things you receive and a lot of things you don't receive in your life. I get phone calls every day from my house on our land phone. Praise the Lord, they don't know my cell phone. After four rings, it goes straight to the answering machine. Why? How many salespeople do you get a, a call a week trying to sell you something? You know, if another caller asks me to, some, something in Branson, I'm going to scream. I don't know why they think that I, I want to go to Branson all the time. And don't say it's because of my age either. Okay? I mean, almost several times a week. It's, it's a, and on, the, on the land phone at the church the other day. I don't, I don't know why, but I picked up the phone and said, uh, this is so-and-so from Branson, and we want to know if you'd like to come visit us. No, thank you very much. This is a business line. Boom, hang up. I try to be as polite as possible. That's hard sometimes, isn't it? There's some things we just don't want to receive. This isn't an option for us. For those of us who are in Christ, we must receive it. We must Take it as our own, this exhortation, because there's an expectation from God that we must, we must adhere to what he is inviting us, calling us, exhorting us to do. I appeal, exhort to you who are brothers, who are disciples, who are followers of Jesus, to receive it. Romans 11, 20, 36. If you have your Bibles, we're going to do a little, little uh, race through Romans, so take your Bibles out. In Romans 11, verse 36, very quickly, I want to read this one passage. In the doxology of Romans 1 through 11, chapter 1 through 11, there's a little doxology that is power-packed in this little verse. And the Apostle Paul, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, For from him and through him and to him are all things. Amen? From him, through him, 
and to him are all things, including you. You are from him. Your salvation is from him. Your salvation is through him. Your salvation is to him, unto him, all those things. To him, it says, be glory forever. Why would you want to receive this? To the glory of God. And as a disciple, as a Christ follower, as a Christian, as a believer, it is my and your heart's desire to glorify God. And God is saying in that doxology, before he gets to this verse, he goes back to that verse here and says, because all things are from him, through him, and unto glory, is by submitting, by receiving, and by applying what God is saying that we must do in this power pack text to receive God's appeal. Secondly, we must, re- re- we must reflect, I'm sorry, reflect applied truth. We must reflect applied truth. Notice in the text, he says, I appeal to you, therefore. Now, the tendency that we have is when we get to word therefore, we just skip over to that and go to the next thing. But the word therefore is strategically placed in this particular spot in the text for a reason. The word therefore has incredible significance to us as we are contemplating, reflecting on what we are receiving from the Lord. He says, I appeal to you, therefore. That word therefore is a huge word. It points now to all of the things that God has said through the penmanship of the Apostle Paul. Romans 1 through chapter 11. Romans chapter 1 through chapter 11, verse 36. 1 through 1136. He has given a whole list of doctrinal truths that are relevant to the gospel of Christ that we placed our faith and trust in. All of the wonderful things that are ours through the gospel and through receiving Jesus, justification, uh, sanctification, uh, salvation, uh, uh, living in the spirit, uh, overcoming and defeating sin, uh, no longer living by the law, but living according to the spirit. I mean, there's just, there's, just, there's just 11 chapters of incredible, beautiful, rich, doctrinal principles and truth that are worthy for us to study in detail as believers. And after having finished 1136, he says, therefore, Because of everything that I have said from chapter 1, verse 1136, after all of that, therefore, there's a foundation here. Therefore, this is then how we should live. Doctrinal truth is not just simply truth that we are to memorize and to know. Brother Mike, apply, apply, apply. You teaching doctrine again? Theology again? You ever get tired of that? I'm going to give you a plug because I'm not teaching this semester. You need to be in a a, a theology class. If not to agree with everything he says, to debate with everything he says. I'm just kidding. We have doctrine. We have principles. We have precepts. We have truths about the gospel of Christ. But those doctrines are not just for head knowledge. They're just not for our understanding Therefore, application. Doctrines should make a difference in how we live. God is not interested in, in how much you know about the Bible. God's not interested in, in how much you know about the Bible. He's not interested in how many doctrines you know. He's not interested in how many verses you can quote. What he's interested in is how those doctrines, how those scriptures impact the way you live your life on a daily basis. There's a whole generation of those of us who grew up in the church, it's been all about knowledge and it's not been about application. We've heard the stories over and over and over again, but they've not made a difference in how we live our lives for the Lord. They've not grown us and discipled us in Christ. They should make a difference. Notice Romans 8, verse 12. Turn your Bibles there. Romans 8, 12. We're going to look at Romans 12, 1 and 2 throughout all of what Paul has said, God has said through Paul in the book of Romans. What does he say in Romans 12? Since it's based upon all that, what does he say in Romans 8, 12? So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, 
to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. How many times is the word live mentioned in this passage? Three times. Three times. God is concerned not about how much we know or how much we profess to know, but he's concerned about how we live our lives on a daily basis. We are to be living sacrifices, applying the truth of God in our lives so that it impacts, it makes a difference in how we live. One of the greatest accusations against the church today is hypocrisy. We don't live out what we claim or profess to believe. That should not be the greatest accusation against the church, should it? It is fair. We're not perfect. And in spite of our imperfections, couldn't there be a little bit more transformation in applied truth in how we live our lives and how we treat others? Reflecting applied truth is a part of putting everything on the altar. Number three, we must then reciprocate his mercies. How do I place it all on the altar? I reciprocate his mercies. By that I mean I, I respond um, by, by giving back to him that which he's done to me. I, I reciprocate. I, I respond in kind. I respond in kind. Reciprocate his mercies. Notice the passage. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... What's the motive? By the mercies of God. I appeal to you, brothers, based upon the mercies of God. That word by means because. Because of the mercies of God. That word thee means because of the one. There's one thing that the Apostle Paul wants us to reflect upon. Because of the one thing that I want to mention at this point, the one thing is the mercies of God. Mercy simply means the compassion, the pity that God had on your life. He took pity on you. He had compassion on you and on me. Because the Bible says in Romans 3.23 that all had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says what? The wage of sin is death. But read with me Romans 8.1. Turn there. Romans 8.1. What does he say in Romans 8.1? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. In Christ, he took upon himself our sin against God and died in our place so that now through faith in him, we are now no longer condemned because of that sin. Why did he do that? Because he had mercy on you. He didn't treat you as you deserve to be treated. And he graciously bestowed upon you a salvation that you did not work for, you did not earn, and you don't deserve. It's simply by his grace that he bestowed upon you this incredible thing that we enjoy and know today called salvation. By the mercies of God. Romans 9.15 says, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Aren't you grateful that God has mercy? And the motive for us doing what he is asking us to do, this appeal, this exhortation, this expectation, is based upon, motivated by, what we have received through Christ, by the mercy of God. It's not to earn salvation. It's not to earn his favor. We already have his favor through Christ. Our souls are already, already redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Our names are already written in the, the Lamb's book of life. We have been sealed and we are secure for all eternity. And the reason I do what I do unto him isn't for any other reason other than this is what he did for me. And so this is what I will do in exchange for him. I will reciprocate. I will give back to him a portion of what he has done for me. I'm motivated out of his love and because of his mercy and because of his grace. You know, if you can't understand that, there's a problem. And it's not that I'm trying to pay back a debt because there's no way in the world that I can do that or you can do that. No matter how much we sacrifice or how much we give or how much we do or how much we surrender, can we ever merit, earn, or deserve what he has done for us? But because he who did so much for us, then how can we not do this for him? 
How can we not? And part of the problem is that we don't fully understand exactly what he's done for us. We need to just sit down for a moment and reflect and contemplate this week on, God, how much have you done for me, undeserving as I am? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, so that through faith in him I can be saved from my sin against you. Reciprocating back the mercies of God. Number four, we must then relinquish any and all claims to my life. I don't want to receive God's appeal, reflect applied truth, reciprocate his mercies. But number four, I must relinquish any and all claims to my life. That means I offer to him, because of his mercy, myself. I mean, Christ gave his all to me and for me. Should I not then give my all to him? Not just a portion, not just a part, but my all. My everything. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Notice he says, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. We're going to go there in great detail next week. This is where I shortened the message. I had about 10 points to this one point, and I had to, I had to back off. This is rich here. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That word present means to make yourself Available. It means to make yourself accessible. We make ourselves, and giving to him, you say, Lord, I am available to you. I'm available. Use me in any way you choose. I am totally accessible. There are no limitations. There are no boundaries. There are no obstacles. I am completely accessible and available to you. I am presenting my body. The word body here in the original, very quickly, it means several things. But for today's context, it means the whole you. Every aspect about you. Without reservation. It's kind of like uh, you describe the, the rooms in your, in your house. And you invite me over for dinner. And there's a couple of rooms in your house that aren't quite clean up to your expectation or maybe my expectation and so you close them so that I don't have access to them and so I come in and I have dinner and there are certain things that that are open to my examination and there's some who aren't it wouldn't be kind of funny if I started going through one or two of those drawers that we all throw stuff in you know what I'm talking about anybody not have one of those anybody have more than two of those I know we do it's where you got all that counter, and you just chunk it in there. And then at some point, somewhere, a couple of months later, you got to go through all of that. And you find stuff that's really valuable that you forgot that was there because you tucked it in there to hide it. And, oh, here that is. I, here's this and here's that. I was missing this. And so we all have those. And it would be funny if I came over to your house and I just started opening drawers and going through closed closets. You would probably invite me to leave, wouldn't you? And yet too often that's what we do to Jesus. Hey, come into my life. Be my Savior. And be my Lord. But you know, there's drawers that you can't look into. There's, 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 there's doors in my life that you're not permitted to go in and rearrange or to change. You're not allowed there. Is that lordship? Is that presenting my all to him or is that giving him my life with reservations and the idea is giving ourselves presenting ourselves making ourselves available and accessible completely and totally there are no places in my life no thoughts that I have no feelings that I feel no thing nothing that I see nothing I hear nothing I say nothing I do no attitudes nothing you are totally completely accessible and available in every aspect of my life as a living sacrifice. Obviously, we're going to take a look at this next week. The word living means to be alive. We're going to talk about the life that we have in Christ. Isn't it interesting, just, just for a side note today, that you're only alive today because of the mercy and the grace of God? Because in your sin, you were dead. You were dead. You've been to a funeral? How much life is there in a dead person? Zero. But before you came to faith in Christ, you were like a corpse. You were dead. 
You are not alive. But he breathed his life into you when you came to faith in Jesus. And now you are alive. And you in turn now give that life that he gave you back to him. The very life that he gave you, you now are giving it back to him as a living sacrifice. That word sacrifice is an interesting word. It means, uh, let me find it here in my notes. I lost my train of thought. Like the Old Testament sacrifice, I'm just going to say this. When a, when a sacrifice was given in the Old Testament, it was, it was put to death. It was, uh, it was offered upon an altar. And uh, as it was being offered upon the altar, the person that was offering it put their hand on it and confessed their sin. And then the priest slit the throat of the offering, offered upon the altar, and the blood flowed. And, and the offering was now dead. That was the sacrifice. But as we offer ourselves as living sacrifices, we offer ourselves alive unto him as a sacrifice. We are putting our all on the altar and giving ourselves completely and totally to him. That's what Jesus did for us. Now, unlike Jesus, we're not dying for the atonement or for the, for the sins of someone else. And we're not even dying for our own sins. We can't do that. But Jesus willingly laid down his life upon the altar for you. And he's calling us to follow that example in respect to the fact that we are to lay ourselves on the altar and give ourselves completely and totally to him. Why? Because that's what he did for us. To relinquish all claims that you have in every aspect of your life. In your business in your 401k, in your future, in your education, in who you date and who you don't date, in what you do on those dates, in your marriage, in your parenting, with your children, in every aspect, no holes barred. God, I relinquish any and all claims that I have on any aspect of my life because what I have has been given from you, by you, in you, and through you. And so because you gave it all to me, now I in turn give it back to you. I don't have any claim to it. And so I relinquish my claim that any part of what I have is yours. Number five. After we relinquish all claims of every aspect of our lives, we need to remove every sin. You can't give to God that which is blemished and tarnished by sin. In the Old Testament, when they gave a sacrifice, it had to be unblemished. It had to be perfect. Now, the reality is, as we talk about this, there's no way in the world that you can be perfect. Because the Bible says that we are to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy, consecrated, separated, set apart from the world and set apart from sin, set apart from the flesh. And so we are to offer to God that which is holy, and he makes us holy. But the reality is, as we struggle, and we're going to see this in the coming days, that if we struggle with our bodies, we are prone to sin. While our souls are saved, our bodies still inhabit the flesh, which is prone to sin. And the members of your body are instruments of unrighteousness. And so there's a war within us, as the Apostle Paul said. The very things I want to do, I don't do, and the very things I don't want to do, I wind up doing. Woe is me. There's, there's this dichotomy going on inside him, this battle, this struggle that's going on between righteousness and sin. And as we present ourselves on a daily basis to the Lord, we must then remove sin. When you came to faith in Christ, what did you do? You confessed your sin to Jesus. I recognize that I'm a sinner. Forgive me my sin, right? You recognize your need for Christ. Turn to the passage in Romans 6, 13. We've, we dealt with this a couple of years ago, and, and some of you were here when we did this. In Romans chapter 6, we did this incredible, beautiful passage in Romans 6 about the struggle of sin. And he wrote to the church in Rome that was struggling. There were some who were saying, hey, I'm free. I'm free from the law, so therefore I'm just going to jump in and dive into this life of sin and live life in the flesh and do what I want to because my name written in the Lamb's book of life, I'm eternally secure and safe, so therefore I'm going to sin. And the Apostle Paul says, should we go on sinning so that grace may abound? And he says what? 
By no means. Absolutely not. But then he says in verse 13, inspiration of the Holy Spirit, do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought, bought, brought I'm sorry, from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. He's relating to this to those who are saying that we've been set free from the law. And while we've been set free from the law, that doesn't then give us permission to live our lives as we please in violation of that very law. For those of us who have been set free from the law are now to get de- to dedicate ourselves as instruments of righteousness. We're now not living by the law or by the will or the ways of the word of God in order to be saved. The Apostle Paul said you can't do that. No amount of obedience is going to make you righteous enough in order to be saved. We've been set free from the law. He said the very law that, that, that I tried to live by, it, it propelled me, it launched me, it rebounded me into more sin because that law that God said, don't step on the grass, I want to step on it. Right? When you come on the grass, don't step on the grass. What do you want to do? Step on the grass. Why is that? That's that rebellious, sinful, fleshly nature in you. When somebody says don't, you want to do. It's a battle, isn't it? Don't don't sit there and look pious with me. Some of you are not good. We're all in the same boat together. It may not be about drinking, smoking, and hanging out with those who do, but it's about gossip and thoughts and attitudes and hearts and thoughts, judgments, condemnations. It's, it's a whole array of things. And so he says to us, be holy. When we came to faith in Christ, we acknowledged our sin, we repented of that sin, and we trusted Jesus to, to cleanse us. That doesn't stop once we accept Jesus as our Savior. It's an ongoing daily activity that must be presented to the Lord who demands that we live righteously. Lord, today, today I I, I use my eyes in ways that I shouldn't have used them. I heard things that I shouldn't have heard. I thought thoughts that I shouldn't have thought. I felt things that I shouldn't have felt. My feet took me in places they shouldn't have gone. My hands did things they shouldn't have done. I have attitudes and characteristics that don't reflect the image of Christ. God, there are things that you've asked me to do that I have not done. And so, Lord, I want today, this day, as a living sacrifice, confess my sin because I know that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we must daily seek the cleansing of the Lord and remove every single sin every single day from the lives that we're living. And I hope that's the Lord calling us. Because if it is, somebody needs to answer that. Number six, we need to raise the standard. We need to raise the standard that God has set, the standard of holiness and the standard of righteousness. For unless we raise the standard, the tendency that we have is to diminish the standard, to lower the standard, because we know that the standard is so high that there's no way in the world that we can ever measure up nor meet the standard of God. And so the tendency is let's lower it, let's bring it back down to a reality that I can live instead of raising it to a reality that challenges and motivates me to move on. I mean, Jesus is the highest standard of all. You can't bring him down to our level. We raise him up to his level and acknowledge where he is, and then we seek to live by that standard. He is the standard. For he says, holy and acceptable to God. The only standard that is acceptable, the only standard that is pleasing is the standard that God sets, not your standard, not my standard, not our standard, but his standard written in his word, revealed by his spirit as we are seeking to live out that standard that he's given us, the standard of the Lord. Turn to Romans 6, 17 and 18. He says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Past tense, you were committed. And having been set free from sin, had become slaves to righteousness. You have been committed. 
Was there a standard that we were once committed to that we have sort of compromised and negotiated on? Because, you know, we live in a culture that wants us to renegotiate the standard of God. I didn't really mean that. That's old school stuff, man. Uh, That's your interpretation of what God says. Not really what God meant. The Apostle Paul really wasn't inspired of the Holy Spirit when he wrote that text to the church. That's for another time, another generation, but this is for the age of enlightenment. We live in a hedonistic culture, hedonism, that seeks nothing to please but to please itself and to live for pleasure. And the church is embracing a hedonism in which we are seeking not to please God, but we are seeking to please ourselves and to live for pleasure. That's why the health, wealth, prosperity gospel is on the rise in America. And there are some well-known, well-publicized, popular preachers today, if you want to call them preachers, I call them false preachers, who are proclaiming a different gospel than the gospel of Jesus. There's a standard that he has set, and it's our objective to rise to that standard, not in our own power, not in our own strength, by our own effort, but through his power, his strength, and his effort. It is attainable. It's going to take some time because you're a work in progress, and so am I. And it's a process of that, 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 that is ongoing as he is taking away and he's adding and taking away and adding, perfecting and molding and shaping us into the likeness of Christ that only is complete, either through death or his return. And until then, you're always going to be a work in progress. When is the struggle over? As long as you have breath. It'll go on. I don't know about you, but that's not good news to me, is it to you? Is it? Because I don't know about you, I get tired. Sometimes I get exhausted of fighting the fight and engaging in warfare. And I have incredible dreams during, I have, Patty and I were talking about this this morning at breakfast. I, I, I have a secret life. You know the secret life of Walter Mitty? Anybody know who I'm talking about, Walter Mitty? A little secret life. Anybody read out there? And uh, that, that's me. My dreams are about wars and secret adventures. Uh, FBI, CIA, Afghanistan, I'm, I'm, I'm always in combat, man. I'm always engaged in, in warfare. I don't know why, but there's always some conflict in my dream. I need psychoanalysis, I know. We have a doctor, but not that kind of doctor. And they don't have medication to fix what I have, so rest at ease. <laughs> but uh, we need... We need to understand that we're in, a, we're in this warfare, this battle, this struggle, as long as we have life, as long as we have breath. And until then, we strive to continue to rise to the standard. And we need to understand that it takes time for that transformation to take place. And we need to give ourselves grace for that to happen. And we need to be gracious unto others until that happens, because everyone in here is a work in progress. Number last, number seven. Redeem his praise. Redeem his praise. To give back, to redeem that which belongs to the Lord. We have made worship about us because we have made our lives about us. Let me say that again. We have made worship about us because we have made our lives about us. And we live, we live Monday through Saturday for ourselves. And we come in here on Sunday morning and we make this about us rather than about him. And then we need to give back to him what belongs to him, not just what happens in this room, but what happens Monday through Saturday. To give it all back to him. Because he said, which is your spiritual worship? That word which means one. The one thing that we must give back to him is spiritual worship. The one thing that you can do is an act of worship that is the most reasonable, the most logical, the most wonderful thing you can give to him is your service. This 
this word worship means service. And when we come into here, we are here to serve him, not to serve ourselves. For that in and of itself is worship. Worship is service. I serve him. I honor him. I glorify him. I worship him. I praise him, not just with my lips, but with my life. I am a living sacrifice, Monday through Monday, 24-7, seven days a week. I give him my life. And it's a continual thing. I don't know about you, but I, keep, I, I give it to him, and then I go take it back. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody here know what I'm talking about? Lord, I give it to you and kind of walk away. And, oh, wait a minute. Uh, wait, 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 wait. And then he goes. Pretty hollow, isn't it? Hey, Boz, what? Why'd you pick that up? Well, Lord, I thought I needed it. No, no, we'll put it back. Okay, so I put it back. And then I go get it again. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You keep struggling with the same old stuff over and over again? And, and sometimes I, I want to look in the mirror and go, you dummy. When are you going to learn to give him what is rightfully his? To redeem him the praise and the honor and the glory through my service of giving him my all. That is my most spiritual, most wonderful, most intelligent act of worship is laying myself at his feet, giving him my all. As we close, I have some white pieces of paper up here. And I'm going to ask you to do this before we sing our invitation to him. I'm going to ask you to come from where you are. Everybody stand for a moment. I'm going to do an exercise. Um, I need some pastors down here. Hey, pastors, come down here. Everybody take one of these white things. I'm going to change it in a minute. You're going to have to do this too. I'm going to have to do it too. I've already done it. Take, take some of these white papers right here and kind of spread out. Here's, here's part of our invitation today. Not yet. No, no, no. They're going to come down here. Line up right here. Yeah. You're going to make us come down to the front? Yeah, I'm going to make you come down to the front. All on the altar. We still believe in an altar at Emmanuel Baptist Church. This is an altar. The only reason I'm standing up here is because of Jesus. What I'm asking you to do today as a living sacrifice. This is a blank sheet of paper. I have one here. It's a blank sheet of paper. And what I want you to do on this blank sheet of paper, down here, to sign your name down here at the bottom on this blank sheet of paper. Now, it's blank for a reason. I want you to take it this week and in your walk with God, Lord, I'm giving you a blank sheet of paper. You write on this whatever you want. I'm giving you permission. Whatever you want, wherever you want, whenever you want, it's yours. And as he reveals this to you, you write it down on this piece of paper. Next week, we're going to have a cross up here, like we've done before, and you're going to nail it to the cross and give it to him. Whatever it is, only you and him will know what this is. Don't even let your spouse see it, okay? Might include them. No cheating. That's what I want us to do. I want to close with this story before we do that, though. A story is told of an aged pastor of a small Scottish church who was asked to resign because there had been no conversions in the church the entire year. Hey, said the old preacher, it has been a lean year for sure, but there was one. One conversion, asked the elder, who was it? We Bobby, replied the pastor. They had forgotten a lad who had not only been saved, but had given himself in full consecration to God. It was we Bobby 
who, in a missionary meeting, when the plate was passed for an offering, asked the usher to put the plate on the floor. He then stepped into the plate with his bare feet, saying, I give myself, I have nothing else to give. This young man became a world-renowned Robert Moffat, who was with David Livingston, gave his life to healing the open sores of the continent of Africa. The only thing you have to give in a worship service is yourself. God, God doesn't really want your money. He doesn't need your money. We give it to him out of obedience, but he didn't really need it. God wants you. Because I'm convinced when he has me, he has my treasure. He has my time. He has my talent. He has my everything. The reason we're not giving to him his money is because he doesn't have our hearts. The reason we're not giving him his time is because he doesn't have our hearts. The reason we're having a hard time living for him as a living sacrifice Monday through Monday is because we have not placed our all on the altar. And so I'm going to ask our pastor here, and I'm going to ask Lisa if she will come up and play for just a moment. And while she does, I'm going to ask you to come, just take one of these, and go back to your seat. So if you would like today to take one of these blank things and sign it when you get back to your seat and say, Lord, fill in the blank so the next Sunday we'll bring it to the cross, I invite you to come. While she plays, as God leads, you come. Set. 